Hello, and welcome to episode 25 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And today we are going to talk about Tennessee. A, a true crime in Tennessee and a paranormal from Tennessee. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Bethy, you got the paranormal, you got the drink. And I'm so excited about this. I think it's really funny because last week you brought beer, and this <laughs> week I'm bringing a cocktail. <laughs> Switch the rolls up a little bit there. And I think what's even funnier is that, again, I chose another cocktail with my favorite alcohol, whiskey. <laughs> can't stand it i don't know why i was like oh this sounds good i'll keep trying it eventually i might like it so this whiskey connoisseurs before this is all over <laughs> crap so this is called a jack apple mule all right so it is with some jack daniels tennessee apple whiskey oh numb i love that stuff straight up <laughs> <laughs> And ginger beer and a squeeze of lime. Nice. It's literally all that's in there. I put a little more ginger beer than the instructions called for. It says to pour the apple jack, apple jacks, no, jack apple <laughs> over ice, add a splash of ginger beer. No, I definitely didn't just do a splash. I put a couple dollops in there, okay. especially in mine. <laughs> and then even though you just said you like to drink it straight. <laughs> I didn't want you slurring at the end of this. Okay. <laughs> and then I added a lime wedge to garnish. Nice. You even have the right cups. I know the copper cups. So I you're actually got hear for a our ting instead of a cling. Yeah, we're gonna hear a ting instead of a cling. And I actually got these for my girlfriend for our wedding, our seven-year wedding anniversary, because I think it's copper. Well, I didn't know that. So. I'm excited. So cheers. Let's see if we like it. Again, us and our green apple drinks. Do you need more ginger beer? No, I need less ginger beer. (laughs) I do not like ginger beer. Really? I thought you said you liked it. Not ginger beer. Actually, I'm really enjoying it. (laughs) I mean, I'm no bartender, but that's pretty good. I think the citrus of the lime, again, takes away that alcohol taste. What was the oh, other definitely. drink? Can't even taste the alcohol. There was another think. drink we made that yeah. the uh, New York one. Yep. Again, was green apple. <laughs> and I, gra- I put the lime in and there. And you put totally the little it. hint of lime in there or lemon or something. And lemon. It, lemon, yeah. yeah. And the citrus like took away that alcohol taste. This is really tasty. The apple teeny. That's what it was. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a fan of ginger beer so this episode beth is liking the cocktail more than me which is so weird because it's whiskey i'll just do the straight up whiskey i didn't time. think i was gonna <laughs> here mom you want to just drink out of this little this little shot bottle here yeah straight up whiskey for me <laughs> put some hair on your chest <laughs> all right have you ever heard of thomas husky Nope. The zoo man? Not ringing any bells, Mom. (laughs) Good. I like to find people that you haven't heard of. This was really interesting to me. Not necessarily his crimes, but in the court, the trial. Oh, okay. So, is he a stone cold killer? 
or is he insane? This is what the jury could be. Or just listen. (laughs) (laughs) Could be or can't come up with something to say. So just listen. (laughs) This is what the jury had to decide in February 1999. And after five days of suspense, jurors came back into the courtroom. Thomas Husky, they all agreed, did suffer from mental illness. But was it so severe that he could be held responsible for the 1992 murder, murders of four women? Mm. The juries were evenly divided on this answer, and a mistrial was declared. Oh, no. Now we're going to go back in time. <laughs> Thomas Husky was born on August 20th. 1960 in Knoxville, Tennessee. His father worked at the Knoxville Zoo as the elephant trainer. And as Thomas grew up, he would accompany his father to work, learning how to work with the elephants. And when he got older, he took his father's position. I'm assuming that because he was so familiar with the zoo, that is the reason that he would often take prostitutes to the zoo and to areas around the zoo to um, do their thing. (laughs) This earned Feed him the animals. Fed something and won the animals. Mom! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I need a drink. <laughs> this earned him the nickname Zoo Man. I guess. Clever name. <laughs> he took many prostitutes there because they all named him Zoo Man. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, this was a little weird, but nothing serious. The podcast started a little weird. <laughs> But nothing serious. (laughs) Then things turned. In February 1992, a woman ran into the Knoxville police station telling them a lie, which led the police to a rapist. Now, I know that sentence just made no sense, but it will. I got very confused. (laughs) That's pretty easy to do, but... (laughs) (laughs) Tom Presley... A retired Knoxville police investigator said that the woman told him that she had been kidnapped and taken to the country and raped. She was then tied up and robbed. She led him to the spot where the incident happened, a wooded area favored by prostitutes and johns where old mattresses and used condoms littered the ground. Oh my gosh, that's disgusting. I'm just painting the picture for you. Appreciate it. Presley recalls that when they got to the dead end of the road, the woman said, there's his car. Oh, so he was there? Sure enough. Husky was in the woods with yet another woman. This guy's got a couple problems. (laughs) Presley arrested Husky, but the case was handed over to another agency after the women admitted to being prostitutes. So the lie was she was not kidnapped and raped, but she was tied and robbed. The women refused to testify, so Husky was set free. Uh oh. Eight months later, in October, a hunter found the body of Patricia Rose Anderson in the same woods. The following week, as deputies searched the area, three more bodies were found, all naked and strangled. When Presley heard the news, he called the county and told them, I think I know who your killer is. Did the quote, zoo man do what other criminals do 
Did he learn from his mistakes and decide that he was not going to leave a witness alive this next time? Experts say that it is a common progression. Most killers begin with a lesser offense, such as indecent exposure, which escalates to rape, and then works up to the next thrill, which could be murder. Mm-mm-mm. After his arrest, other victims came forward accusing Husky of rape. Police searched Husky's parents' home where he lived and found rope, porn, and jewelry, which police suspected belonged to his dead victims. They presented this evidence to Husky. His response? He said that he suffered from multiple personality disorder, and the one of his personalities, Kyle, who was angry and mean. Kyle was the killer. Yes, Husky was there at the killings, and yes, it was his hands that killed the women, but it was his alter ego, Kyle, who hated him and wanted to ruin his life, who did the actual killing. That's like uh, Son of Sam saying that his neighbor's dog told him (laughs) to kill. We should do an episode on that creep. But that's like, and then he ended up admitting that when he was in prison, when they said he was insane, that he had made it up. He made it all up. So that he wouldn't be executed. Right. So I wonder if this guy's doing the same thing. I don't know. A retired Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent who was present at the interview said that he thought Husky was conning the system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Most of his story, said the agent, sounded like characters from a soap opera on TV. In fact, the Knox County District Attorney General... Randy Nichols suggested in court that Husky might have gotten his ideas from a storyline on the daytime soap opera Days of Our Lives. See, I'm on their side. I think he's conning them. I'm going to leave it up to the listeners. The case continued for years. Years. In 1992, Husky was indicted on 23 counts of rape, robbery, and kidnapping involving four women. Three years later, Husky was convicted of rape and aggravated robbery in a case involving a 30-year-old woman. Then a year later, a jury convicted Husky of raping and robbing three prostitutes in 91 and 92. The judge sentenced him to 43 years in jail. So all that adds up to 66 years. Thank you. I suck at math. (laughs) Husky's case is one of the most expensive in Tennessee's history. Why? It involved court-appointed defense lawyers because he didn't have enough money. Oh. Remember, taxpayers pay for these lawyers. And of December 1998, and that dates us, I know, Husky's defense team and its experts had received nearly $200,000. Oh, my gosh. According to the 12698 edition of the Knoxville News Sentinel newspaper in 1996, the defense team asked the court for more lawyers to join the team. What? One for each of Husky's alter egos. Are you kidding me? It was turned down. Yeah. (laughs) They're just trying. They're, They're also conning the system. Oh, my gosh. I just wanted to talk a little about the 1999 trial itself because I found it interesting to read about the different views of the psychiatrist 
that they all called forward. I mean, that was my major in college, so I always find this psychology fascinating. Mm-hmm. So for the defense, three nationally known psychiatrists, Dr. Robert L. Sadoff and Dr. Richard Cloft of Pennsylvania, and Knoxville clinical psychologist Diane McCoy all believed that Husky had multiple personalities. Interesting. This multiple personality disorder was caused by severe traumatic events in his life. What was his IQ? Was he really smart or no? No. Okay. Set off, and I don't know exact numbers. I get all these criminals mixed up in my mind in their IQs. (laughs) Set off, and especially McCoy, worked with Husky since his early arrest. McCoy said that Husky told her about a substitute teacher that was at his junior high school when he was a teen. She recruited him into a prostitution ring in the mid-1990s. She recruited him? Mm -hmm. I am not going to go into detail, but suffice it to say, Husky was involved in some mm, edgy sex involving men. He was in middle school? Yeah, he was a junior high. The special place in hell for people like her. The sex included men and women. So he also stated to McCoy that as a punishment, he was the recipient of a gang rape involving men. One even was a cop named Sergeant Blackie. Sending him to jobs, the substitute teacher gave Husky code names such as Kyle and Timmy. This gave him insight as to what character he was to adopt for his client. Oh my gosh, just got really sick to my stomach. These names happen to match the personalities that appear in Husky. I mean, he's probably been affected. He's obviously been affected by these code names or anything. He's still like playing their roles. So would you classify that as a personality disorder or would you just say he's just insane? Well, he might not even be playing them. A lot of times when people are abused, they go into themselves sort of. And sometimes that does develop a personality disorder because their real self withdraws and perhaps another, quote, self comes forward. So I don't know. It's a to me, it's a fascinating, I guess, behavioral disorder. Ugh, that just I don't know. Have you seen the movie Split? No, it is. It came out in like. It had to be like 2016, 17, I think. And it was with James McAvoy. I know you probably don't know. (laughs) Ringing any bells? (laughs) Ringing no bells. But he like would kidnap girls and he had, I think he had like over 20 different split personalities. Holy smokes. And it was so crazy because he would like dress as them and he had been abused and so he had like all these personalities to like get past past Mm -hmm. get past past experiences that he had had and it was just an incredible way to see how that kind of works in people's mind yes Mm -hmm. exactly sad doesn't make what they do right by any means it's a mental disorder it's just it's see it's just crazy how what you do to others how that affects them and then it affects other people and affects other people and be nice to everyone. <laughs> wow. A whiskey gets to you guys. <laughs> Moving on. Going back to Husky. <laughs> I will say here that Sergeant Blackie has never been located. 
And the substitute teacher supposedly does exist, but never appeared in court. What? So. Aren't you summoned to court, though? But didn't they, like, follow into her sex ring she was leading? So did they and not find anything? And that's why she was never called to court? I hate this. Questions with no answers. Because I think that the his defense would definitely have called her into court sure. had she been found there guilty was of evidence this. behind what they were claiming right i don't know just saying oh, that's frustrating Sadoff wrote in a letter to the defense attorneys that it was clear that it was the alter ego kyle who is violent and who committed the rapes and murders of the women thomas he said has no memory of the incidents and has no intention of harming anyone. Okay, so put Kyle in jail and leave Thomas out. McCoy wrote in a report made public in 1996 that, quote, not only did Kyle admit to the killings, he admitted to making statements to the police, which he said were not necessarily the truth, but were what he thought the police wanted to hear from him in order to implicate Tom. This is from the 11099 edition of the Knoxville News Sentinel newspaper. According to the Philadelphia psychiatrist Cluft, Husky believes in the other personalities, but also believes he's not mentally ill. Instead, he believes he has a gift. Oh, boy. But he does assume that Kyle did the crimes. Now we're going to the prosecutor. Switch sides of the table. The prosecutors also called well-acclaimed psychologists for their defense. Michael Nash and Dr. Herbert Spiegel of New York. Interestingly enough, Spiegel used to substitute for the therapist of the woman known as Sybil. (laughs) Back to, I believe, the 70s. Sally Fields played Sybil in this movie, and she had multiple personalities. Okay. There's also a book by the same name, Sybil, which I read way back when. Okay. Fascinating. So this guy that they called was a substitute for the therapist of Sybil. Interesting. I thought so. Spiegel believes that Sybil was coached by her therapist to attest to her multiple personalities. He believes that multiple personality disorder has been overdiagnosed by therapists and psychiatrists over the years. So he believes that even Sybil did not actually have multiple personalities. This is just probably my ignorance, but I almost feel like I could easily come up with that. Like when I'm PMSing, we're going to name her. It is a different person. (laughs) And then when I'm mad at my kids, you know, or when I've had some whiskey and I'm chatty, we're going (laughs) to, we'll call her Samantha. Like, you know what I mean though? Chatty Kathy. Man, that was clever. (laughs) But I feel like it'd be kind of easy to come up with that. That's my ignorance speaking, though. Well, I don't... See, that's why I'm leaving it up to the listeners. There is this diagnosis. I mean, it is a diagnosis. No, I I do think people really do suffer with it. I don't mean to minimize that. I do think people probably do suffer with it. But was it in this case? I don't know. I mean, Mm. I... He's obviously very troubled, though. Yeah. Family members and friends have stated that Husky was a loner and had an imaginary friend as a child. He would wear a cape and play he was Superman. (laughs) (laughs) My mother is laughing because my four-year-old 
has an invisible friend named Dr. John. <laughs> and today they were playing <laughs> they were playing superhero with capes on. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he always enjoyed engaging in elaborate fantasies through his entire life. <laughs> Mom, do not draw any similarities between my four-year-old and this psychopath. I'm not. No. <laughs> you are too. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about four-year-old, though. This guy, I think, kept it up. Well, I don't know if he ran Dr. around. Dr. John with a- <laughs> disappears soon. I don't know whether he ran around with a cape on while he was training the elephants, but he he, he doesn't the cape was just new today because we made it today. He doesn't I know, that's usually what's so run funny. around that's with Dr. So funny John about and capes. <laughs> oh, okay. He always enjoyed engaging in elaborate fantasies throughout his entire life and quote never seemed to outgrow his fascination with superheroes. Hmm. Husky was found guilty in the rapes committed before the murders. But as I stated in the beginning, the jury was deadlocked on the murder charges. Okay, now you can see mm-hmm. why it was a split panel. Sure. Later, courts threw out important evidence that tied Husky to the case. The search warrant to search his parents' house, where he found the jewelry yeah, and yeah. the porn was signed by a city judicial commissioner, not from a judge. a judge. Oh, crap. So all that stuff that was collected at the house was thrown out. (laughs) Then Husky's lawyers pushed that his admitting to the crime or his alter ego, Kyle, that was all coerced. So that evidence was thrown out also. My So literally now... They really don't have anything to tie in. Nothing. In October 2005, so 13 years after Patricia Anderson's body was found, District Attorney Randy Nichols gave up the murder case, and Judge Richard Baumgarter dismissed the charges. Husky was convicted on October 20th, 1995, and sentenced to 66 years in prison. He is serving his time at South Central Correctional Facility in Clifton, Tennessee. But to date, no one has been held accountable for the deaths of Patricia Anderson, Patricia Johnson, Darlene Smith, and Susan Stone. Investigators are convinced that Husky is guilty and got away with murder. So he's in prison right now. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming he's still alive, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Is he still suffering from these personalities while he's in jail? They say yes. There's different accounts. That's what's so weird. They also, while he was in prison, he's an artist. And I wish I could come up with a picture of some of his pictures (laughs) because I'd like to know how good he is, you know, Mm -hmm. because they took, oh, he had. Is it Kyle or is it Thomas? Or is it Bob Fernando? I don't know. But he would um, actually draw pictures or make these pictures for people in court. And so when he came to the court, he would hand out these drawings. That's like a child. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's why I want to know how good the drawings actually were. They um, too. They took about 200 or so of them and took them away from him because somebody reported that he was drawing pictures of his victims. Oh, 
And so they confiscated them. One way or the other, I think if this man ever got out, I think he'd still be a danger. Yeah. Um, whether it's Kyle or... Whether if there's a personality disorder or doesn't not, matter. He's, yes. He encases it all. And I think he would be a danger. You know, I mean, hopefully he is getting some help for himself. But if he does suffer from these. But I also hope he never is released. When he well, goes he up for jail. parole. Yeah. I hope they don't see, oh, good behavior. Let's let him go. Because I, I don't think he can be, I don't know. I don't know. That's my opinion. Hmm. That was kind of a interesting case because of that, because he sure. actually, they actually couldn't decide. And you can see both sides of it. It's so sad that the families never got justice for those that did die. Yeah, I know. You can see, a, I guess, a news report and the deputy is walking in a field. He's like, yeah, it was like, here's a body. And then you walk a little bit and, oh my gosh, here's another body. And you took a few more steps and... Then all of a sudden there was another body. He said it was just horrific. That's awful. That's awful. Yeah. Ugh. Zoo man. So are you not going to drink that? No, you can have it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> It'll be the first time that I ever hand my drink over. <laughs> well, here then, let me hand you a little bottle. While you, you can actually drink it straight then. All right. Okay, that was a good deal. <laughs> okay. So now that we're situated with our beverages, sitting in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains in Sevierville, Tennessee. Sevierville. Sevierville. Okay. S-E-V-I-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. Sevierville. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm in spelling bee. <laughs> Sits a plantation that has literally seen it all. It is said in many resources I found that there have been more than 70 deaths oh including gosh. murder in the house but that's just in the house they're said to have been many more lives lost on the property itself the plantation is called Wheatland Plantation named for the abundance of wheat that the farm grew the home was originally built in 1823 and owned and ran by the Chandler family. God, I love the name Chandler. <laughs> I love it from friends. Okay. And what's interesting is that the exact construction spot of the home was chosen by the existence of a very large geode. Do you know what that is? Please explain it to me. <laughs> did, you hope I, did you hope i knew what it was so a geode it's i was hoping you knew what it was <laughs> it is a mass of mineral matter it's a big rock <laughs> and inside are these like crystals mm -hmm. but this one is huge like huge than, yeah like bigger than obi huge so this family Built their home on top of it. They didn't remove it. They built their home on top of it. And it's still there to this day. Battles of the Revolutionary War were fought on the land of this home, as well as the Civil War. My goodness. The Battle of Boyd's Creek was fought just outside the home. The creek runs the perimeter of the property. Over two dozen Cherokee Indians were killed during this battle. These men were buried in a mass grave in the woods behind the house. Oh, how awful. Many Native American chants are heard on the property. One story I read said that they were buried respectively 
in a large plot and it was done so like this because Mr. Chandler promised the chief that he would bury them there and honor them by never disturbing the plot. But other legends say that the men were just kind of stacked like timber and buried in a grave. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which is fact. During the Civil War, over 2,000 soldiers occupied the plantation house, using it as a winter camp and a field hospital at some times. In the year 1850, records indicate that there were 188 slaves on the property. Wow. It is believed there were much more before 1850, but the owner was very savvy with technology. Mm-hmm. And so industrialization was just kind of starting at I the see. time. So he got, didn't need them he didn't need, yes. field hands. Yes. When he first built the house, he had an English tin roof shipped in from Europe. I love those. To make it fireproof for the time. Oh, I like the sound of it. <laughs> so there's just like layer upon layer of history at this home and this plantation. At the time of the Civil War, the owner's name was Cameron, and he is said to have treated the slaves very well. So much so that even after the Civil War and the slaves were freed, most of them remained and worked for him, chose to do so, living on the property or just even next to it. On his death, he even gave a great amount of land to them. There's a cemetery on the property where 70 or so grave sites are for some of those African slaves that lived on the property. Mm-hmm. The cemetery also has two burial sites for two Revolutionary War soldiers as well. Wow. Is this the same area that the Indians were also buried? They're buried in the woods, literally like right behind the cemetery. Okay. Much paranormal activity happens at this home and on the property. That I can imagine. Like I mentioned before, chanting and singing is heard from the woods. Flickering candles are seen kind of roaming about the house from the road that now sits basically directly in front of the home. Has the home been kept up or is it in shambles? Okay. No, it's been kept up. Uh, Phantom gunshots, moans, and disembodied voices are heard. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to stop here and I'm actually going to cover this paranormal a little differently than we've done because we've covered haunted houses and plantations before. I wanted to do a little something different. I watched this YouTube video called Wheatland's Walkthrough on October 22nd, 2016. This video is done by Angel Lee, a Southern spiritual messenger. She was actually on vacation in the area with some family and friends, and they kind of spontaneously stopped by the property. At the time, it was uh, like a museum. Okay. Did she have any idea about this history? or No, she did not. Just, oh, this is a cool place to stop. Yeah, and she was just visiting the area uh, with her family and friends. And so they just, yeah, they just spontaneously stopped here. And the owners at the time, John Burns III, Richard Parker, and Lee Johnson, let them come in and film. And how do I explain this? So, like I said, it was a very spur-of-the-moment trip, and the video is not edited. Okay. So it's very long, (laughs) and the audio is not very good. Okay. And it's pretty slow-moving, because they're literally just walking the land and walking through the house, and they didn't edit any of it out and like I said the audio is really bad like there's one part where it's like actually super intense when they're in the house and I'll get there and some lady just keeps coughing and coughing and coughing and coughing <laughs> and you're like oh my gosh will somebody say something or give her a t- like a, a cough drop like <laughs> I want to hear or something <laughs> what she's this lady saying so it's not edited 
And so, like I said, it's really long. But, hey, that's why you guys have us to watch these <laughs> videos, share with you the information from them. Basically shows her walking around, like I said, the land and the home. And she carries around a notebook. So I don't know if you or the listeners are familiar with how spiritual messengers work, but she carries a notebook and she kind of scribbles down sounds or images or names that spirits as send happening. her as they kind of come to her in message. These spirits can be residual or they can just be a memory that she's picking up on. The whole time she's walking around, one of the owners is walking around with her. She does her thing of like sensing spirit and then when she wants the owner to confirm what she's feeling or what she's saying, she would ask him and he would give her the history. So I think that was a really fun way to kind oh, of learn the history. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to share in that way. So one of the first buildings she goes into is this old faded red barn. They walk around it slowly and she starts scribbling away. She says that she senses a little boy around the ages of one or two and he's running around and he's playing in the barn she said he has a female spirit with him, but he kept doing the like muscle stance. So like, you know, like the muscle yeah, arm, yeah, you know, yeah. and she says, I don't know if he's showing me that he's strong or I think that's like his name. He keeps showing me his arm and saying strong, strong, strong. And when she asks the owner, who, by the way, is in this like really bright tropical shirt with like old cars <laughs> on it. It's awesome. <laughs> He confirms, yes, that's probably Armstrong. Oh, my gosh. He was one of the Chandler children, and he died when he was a little older than one. <gasps> he was the son of John Chandler and died in June of 1826. Holy smokes. So even though the video was long, whenever those things would come up, I'd be like, it would make, oh, my gosh, this it would is Make so it worth cool. it. Yeah. Yes. Next, I walk out to Boyd's Creek where you can see there's a creek, then there's a line of woods. And in the clearing there in this, is this like the old grave sites of the African slaves. Okay. Mm -hmm. She doesn't stay there long, though, because she keeps saying that someone is really calling her to the house. She's distracted. Like the whole time, Tropical Shirt Man is like <laughs> trying to tell her about stuff. And you can tell she's like, she's not listening. Like she is, somebody's calling her towards the house. And she even says at one point, like, I feel like somebody just fell in the house. Like, it, it's weird. She's just totally distracted. So they decide to walk her to the house. And they walk her into the house through the basement. She has a really hard time walking into the basement. Tons of energy. The owners and I'm thinking it's because that geode in the middle of the floor in the basement. So you can see it. You can see it. Oh, my gosh. They built the house around it, mm -hmm. not on it. No, around it. Wow. Yeah. She has a really hard time walking into it. And she actually, she actually didn't even know what a geode was. And so they had to like explain to her what it was. And she just kept saying like, oh, I feel really sick. Like it's really hard. For, I got to get past all this energy. So it was crazy. So while in the basement, the lights start flickering. And as she's like scribbling in her notebook, the lights just start going. It was so crazy. And a man comes through to her telling her his name is Morg. He, she just keeps hearing Morg, Morg. And he tells her that he's hiding out down there. And she just keeps telling this lady she's with, like, his name is Morg. He keeps saying Morg and he's hiding. He's hiding. And she, um, somebody from her crew, because I think they do other videos that they edit. So he's there and he has a millimeter with them, which shows you like electromagnetic fields. So it has this little 
meter ticker mm-hmm. and when a spirit's around and even if you hold it up to a light you know like electricity you'll right. see the spike mm-hmm. but they're obviously not near this this is in the basement there's a couple those old dangly lights in the basement but there's nothing really to set it off it's like old brick walls and the geode wouldn't do that no I, they were in another part of this basement now away from the geode she tells this guy the guy that's holding it she says there's a shadow next to you. And as soon as she says it, the millimeter spikes. Wow. So she's scribbling away in her notebook and repeating morgue, morgue, morgue. She keeps, she says like, I don't think he died in the house, but he, he has something to do with the house. So she turns and she asks, she asks tropical shirt guy. <laughs> and he answers. Yep. That's probably William Morgan. He built the house. Oh my gosh. He was a Freemason. He was known to hide out from authorities in the basement. No way. It was the last known house still standing that he had built. Wow. After he tells her this, a disembodied voice is captured. I mean, crystal clear. Again, there's no editing or anything. You just hear this little kid saying, can you hear me? That was just crazy. That was so crazy. So Tropical Shirt Man also gives some weird fact that Freemasons always built things in threes. They divided everything in threes. Because of this, the home square footage is 666 square feet. Oh, that's not good. It's interesting. (laughs) Now, they move into the house. They're standing in the parlor, and Angel starts scribbling, 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 and she says, okay, there was a blanche here. Tropical shirt guy says, (laughs) turn around. Angel kind of she turns around and she just gasps. She goes, Jesus Christ. Tropical shirt guy shows her a portrait of an old woman hanging on the wall behind her. This is Blanche McMahon, the last heir to live in the home. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this lady, really? They move into the dining room and Angel says, OK, a male is coming through. George. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets better. But then she kind of just moves on from that. That's all, she's, that's all she says, George. George is here. And then she just moves on. Oh, George. <laughs> she moves into the entryway by the stairs. And she says that something is drawing her in there, but it's very angry. She explains that she feels there was a dispute and a lot of anger. So Tropical Shirt Man tells her this story. And this was the time that the coughing started. So... <laughs> You don't know if you got the whole story. <laughs> I couldn't really get the whole story from the audio. So then I had to dig into the go into research and what it was. So I did the best I could. <laughs> the farm was originally meant to be left to Revolutionary War veteran Timothy Chandler. But his mother and the rest of the family thought he enjoyed alcohol a little bit too much the, to manage the farm. So instead, it was left to her grandson, John Chandler, Timothy's son, in 1819. Under John's management, the farm grew steadily and became the area's largest farm. He was very successful. John, owning the plantation, never sat well with his father, Timothy. Rage started to build within Timothy. Many fights, threats, and altercations arose between the father and son, eventually boiling over. Now, there's two different stories that I read online, but in in both, Timothy, the dad, 
was coming down the stairs pointing a gun at his son, John. Oh, my gosh. Now, one story says that in defending himself, John hit the gun away with the fireplace poker and in the scuffle ended up accidentally stabbing and killing his father. Another story, of course, is a little darker and says that when he hit the gun away with the fireplace poker, he proceeded to bludgeon his father. So it wasn't an accident. I don't know I if it was or okay. not, but I don't know, but I don't know. <laughs> you don't know, but you don't know? <laughs> okay, we got it. You don't know. Regardless of what story you believe, Timothy was injured and went to the parlor to suffer from his injuries. He lay on the floor and eventually bled out. Mm. Now, from what I read, legend had it that the blood on the floorboards could never be cleaned away. Owners after owners would clean, and they even had the boards sanded, sanded back, and it would re- return. And I kind of like eye-rolled at this information. I mean, it's the same spooky story that was told about Lucy killing right, her husband. Right, exactly, in the stairs. Yeah. Right. But in this video, Tropical Shirt Man is telling the story. <laughs> And before even getting to the part of laying on the parlor floor suffering, you know, before he even gets to that part in his story, she walks over to the parlor and puts her hand down to the floor. And as she does that, the camera kind of pans down with her. And you can noticeably see like a dark stain on the floor. It's not like super dark, but you can literally see the floorboards have a different hue in a couple spots where the body had lay. Hmm. And she even went there before he got to that part in the story. So that was, it was weird. So she stands to move on and she keeps saying, I keep getting a George. He just keeps popping up and no one seems to know why or who he is. (laughs) We do. (laughs) She's just baffled. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's our George. He knew I was going to watch this video. Angel walks back into the dining room and she starts picking up on a Sam or a Samuel. She says that he's dancing under the sun and he's pointing at the sun. She said that Blanche was with him and the Sam or Samuel guy just was dancing in the sun and they're pointing at the sun. Tropical Shirt Man confirms Blanche's son's name was Samuel. Jeez. This is, I mean, it just got crazy. So like Angel says, I'm picking up on a T-H something Z. And Tropical Shirt Man says, yeah, that's my great aunt Thurza. She's with me a lot. Oh. I mean, it was just crazy. So again, she walks through the entryway to go upstairs and her cameraman kind of gets like lightheaded. And she said, yeah, this is where I felt that angry energy. Something just went through you. I mean, it was just crazy. So she's standing at the bottom of the stairs and she's just still baffled by George. She says, Blanche just keeps talking about George. (laughs) She senses two children kind of running around playing upstairs, start to go upstairs. But again, she stops. And this time she senses another female spirit. The spirit is mad and is mourning. She starts scribbling and ex- she explains what she's feeling, saying that it is a slave spirit. And that she was very mad about something that happened to her child. She's mourning a child. She says, can you hear her crying out? Tropical shirt man shakes his head slowly. And says, yes, we hear her sighing and moaning a lot upstairs. This would be Celia. She was a servant here. And in 1912, she became pregnant by Adele Chandler's son. Mm. She gave birth to a son, Eugene. But the people of the house didn't want him on the property. And he was sent to Knoxville. Angel said, yes, she's looking for her son. She's really upset. 
They go into other rooms, but I wanted to talk about the kitchen. In the kitchen, there's a door that is the original door that originally led to the back porch. It is this huge. I mean, people pay for barn doors all the time. This is an original awesome door. I mean, from the <laughs> 1800s, it's crazy. Angel stands by the door and touches the door, and she says a Jackson comes through. She's like, it's clear as day. He is Jackson. George comes through a lot, but <laughs> George is still coming through. He's kind of nosing his way in there to get attention, but Jackson is very adamant. I am Jackson. Or this is Jackson. Something with Jackson. Tropical shirt man shares. Back in the day, Andrew Jackson, before he was president, while he was running for president, he and his wife, Rachel, stayed at the house for a week while he did his campaigning. He also stayed at the house on his ride back up to Washington after he got the presidency. Holy smokes. And that was the original door going in and out of the kitchen that he would have been coming in and out of. Either it was Andrew Jackson himself coming through or the fact that the family was so proud that they had hosted right. the president. It was one of them trying to tell their story. <laughs> Angel walks further into the kitchen and you can see her face instantly go white. And she's making like a face that she's smelling something awful. She says, I smell burning, not food, but like flesh burning. Ew. She stands there for a moment and she says, I sense children. Oh, no. I sense children burning. Tropical Shirtman confirms there had been four children that died in a huge fire in the home in January 1824 they had rebuilt the home with the original foundation on top of the children's ashes mm. overall the home was very active again there was much more to the video but geez how many spirits are there it was crazy they have a lot of paranormal groups that go through that have done investigations there so like i said the home was a museum for a while owned and operated by tropical shirt man <laughs> But upon looking at TripAdvisor, it looks like the museum was closed to the public and is now a private property since the spring of 2017. Wow. I wonder if the owners right now. So I read like on TripAdvisor, because I always like to get reviews on there. And the last one I saw that was a couple months ago said that, oh, I was really bummed to see that this isn't a museum anymore. Mm -hmm. um, there's like kids toys out front and children playing out there and everything. I don't think it was Tropical Shirt Man because he was probably in his late 60s um, while he was doing this tour with her. Mm -hmm. They were trying to keep it in the family. So I, I don't know. It could just be relatives. I see. But... Who now reside there. I just think that's crazy that they're, I mean, how awesome for them to be keep passing a private it. residents that live in this such a historical home. And keep passing it. Yeah. In the family. I would, yeah, that would be so cool. Nothing malevolent or anything like that. She could just sense that there had been arguments or, I mean, there were so many other stories I read that we could sit here all night because it's very interesting because I mean, it's been there for so long. Right. I mean, I guess there was a guy that was, I don't know, he's doing something illegal with, um, not whiskey, but moonshine. Okay. And so the police, the sheriff came and they wanted to arrest him. He's like, you can't arrest me without a warrant. And so the sheriff left his deputy there standing outside the door while he went to go get a warrant, came back, and that guy had killed the deputy. So there was like, oh my there was a lot of these stories. There was a lot of death there at this home. 
and families had been living there. So you have a lot of the up in the master, I guess a lot of people owners had, you know, died in their bed up there. Mm -hmm. And interesting. It was really cool. So I thought I could tell that well, you know, with tropical shirt man's help. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we call. Oh, fun. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) So polite. Nice doing business with you. Likewise. Okay. Good night. All right. Well, next week we're bringing it back to Kansas. Yay. Kansas. Yes, yes, yes. Back to Kansas where this all began (laughs) in episode one. (laughs) That's right. Like we always say, if you have your own personal stories, even a true crime one, send them our way at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media where I always post all the pictures from this episode, other episodes, articles. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you guys have a fantastic week. Yes. Remember, send in your stories. Send them in. We've gotten some really good ones. Really good ones. Just personal stories, which are absolutely mind-blowing. So we're still debating, are we going to do one section just on these personal stories or are we going to add them to our I think we have enough to make a couple little mini episodes, honestly. We do. This was fun, Mom. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers, Mama. Love you, kid.